Welcome to Feminist Erotica, a podcast from Rebellious Magazine for Women. Join Jera, Karen, and Princess for stimulating interviews that explore feminist representations of desire, as well as short and sweet erotic snippets read by the authors themselves. This episode is sponsored by Just the Tip, Rebellious Magazine's inclusive sex and relationship advice column where you'll find interviews with sexuality researchers and educators, as well as compassionate responses to anonymous questions. Check it out at rebelliousmagazine.com slash just dash the dash tip. So once again, thank you to our special guests for joining us. We're going to let you introduce yourselves in a minute, but first of all, this is a post book club interview with two of the collaborators from Hustling Verse, a poetry anthology from sex workers. So we just had a great conversation about this anthology. And now we're going to talk to the contributors about everything related to sex work and poetry and combining those two things and what it was like to have this, this anthology come out. So first of all, my name is Jara Brown. I am one of the co-hosts for the Feminist Erotica podcast. I also, under a different name, uh, started out as a sacred intimate, which was more full service type of stuff. And then I switched to pro-doming and fetish work about two years ago. And now I'm trying to figure out how the hell I wrap my brain around being a writer and a service provider. So that's a little bit about my background. Karen and Princess, do you want to say who you are before we introduce the guests? Hi, I'm Karen Hawkins. I'm one of the co-hosts of the Feminist Erotica podcast, and I'm also the founder of Rebellious Magazine, which is kind of the home for the podcast. My name is Princess McDowell. I'm also a co-host for this podcast. I am a writer in Rebellion for Rebellious Magazine. I like to say that whatever wild ideas Karen comes up with, she usually calls me first and I usually get sucked into it. So luckily this podcast is one of those projects that I I won't say sucked into into this podcast because I've actually been enjoying uh, everything with this uh, that we've been doing. So yeah, that is who I am. Um, Juba, would you mind introducing yourself? You do a lot. Yeah. First, thank you for uh, inviting me. All, and also, I, 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 what I always have to say when I'm going to something, my daughter, who's 16 years old, one of my two children, says hi. I'm Juba Kalamka, he, him, his. A lot of different stuff I've had the privilege of being involved in. I've been an artist either as starting in children's theater in Chicago since like in the late 70s and have been doing hip hop since the late 80s, starting in Chicago with a couple of groups. Stuff that I did of the most note was after moving to the Bay Area in January of 1999. So uh, involved in the sort of burgeoning, uh, mostly that was actually developing online, but centered on a lot of projects that were happening in the Bay Area, the queer hip hop, uh, homo hop scene. So uh, I was for a time a member of Rainbow Flavor, co-founder of a group called Deep Dick Collective or DDC, it is popularly known and curated the Peace Out Homo Hop Festival for, for six years. That was a project of East Bay Pride. A lot of different solo work. Concurrent to that, poetry and performance artwork with uh, Mangles with Chili, disability arts uh, stuff, queer disability art stuff with Sins Invalid over the last 10 years. 
and concurrent to the, all of that over the last 20 years working uh, in HIV services for some large international concerns and for the last five years for uh, St. James Infirmary, which is a 20-year-old occupational health and safety clinic uh, that serves current and former sex workers, front-facing stuff with injection drug users, and some very specific uh, uh, trans umbrella uh, healthcare clinical uh, work for uh, trans spectrum sex workers. I'm at the stage of my career where I'm on a bunch of boards and stuff. So I work with the Desiree Alliance, which is a sex worker advocacy organization. Um, and I should say uh, how I became involved with the anthology was through having toured with Sex Workers Art Show in 2006. And that was where I met Amber Dawn. And so we have continued to communication and friendship over uh, that period of, of time. And um, there's other stuff, but yeah, that, that's happening. You know, but and that's how I hit here. And someone asked me to talk again, and I'm grateful to be talking again. That's amazing. And Tracy? Okay. So yeah, I've been involved with the sex industry since my teens. I've also been involved with the sex workers movement for a long time. I'm one of the co-founders of the Pony Co Coordinating Committee, which was created in 1989. Uh, to revive PONY. Uh, oh, PONY stands for Prostitutes of New York, which was formed in 1975, but we revived it in the 1990s. So in the winter of 1989, we revived PONY. And so I, I was on this coordinating committee. We, did, we actually debated a lot about whether to call it PONY or something else, because already the word prostitute was becoming a little bit old fashioned but we decided to go with something traditional. And yeah, so I was involved with that. I sort of took a back seat from a lot of activism a little while ago because I felt like after getting Pony off the ground, a lot of uh, new sex worker organizations flowered in New York City. And we actually came to, we people started thinking of us as really stuffy and conservative. <laughs> and I realized, oh, we've actually succeeded in building a movement if they think that we're these like stuffy old boars. Uh, we actually still have a little remnant of pony operating in the background. So that's, my, that's some of my activism stuff. And I published three novels. The first novel is Diary of a Manhattan Call Girl. And it's part of the series. It's a trilogy. It's about a sex worker called Nancy Chan. Right now I'm doing a radio segment every Sunday night. I talk to Hong Kong morning radio. It's like a, it's a public radio station called RTHK Radio 3. And every Sunday night I do that for about 15 minutes. We talk about what's happening in New York. It's helped me get through the COVID-19 quarantine. <laughs> And then an Amber Dawn wrote to me, asked me to contribute something to Hustling Verse. I actually tried to contribute something that was about Melania Trump, mm. a poem mm. I published about Melania Trump. And she asked me for something more experiential. So uh, we, I ended up submitting a piece that is a little bit autobiographical, I guess. For people who, who are not familiar with, with this anthology, it's, it's a really wonderful collection of a lot of sex workers' experiences 
around sex work and it runs the gamut of different ways that you can be involved in sex work and the different intersectional identities, some people that are still involved, some people that have uh, given it up and moved on. From the, both of your perspectives as contributors, what surprised you about the collection or what did you think when you finally saw the, the finished product? The, a, a short way of saying it, what, what, what I thought was that like, I mean, I was familiar with some of the people who were involved because of who I knew who was curating the anthology. I mean, I ex there was a way that I expected it to be incredibly expansive, you know, and interesting and coming from a, a, a lot of different angles of experience, but I couldn't, I could not, I couldn't have said how many different angles of experience that like reading it, it was just, I mean, it was, I mean, I expected there to be a lot of it that was significantly different than, than my own ex experience. But the drill down that that people did on the per on both the personal and the conceptual and identity stuff was something for me that was I'm still having to go back and read and reread, and I see something else every time that I pick it uh, pick it up to go back and and I pick it up to go back and uh, read. I also feel like a poser because it's so uh, because it's so good. It's just an amazing piece of you know just an amazing anthology of work. Everybody uh, uh, in it was just was was incredible. And that's from the prose to the, you know, to the to narrative stuff, to the shorter pieces, like everything was just was, was amazing. You know, I'm going to say something a little bit irreverent, maybe. It, I, I didn't realize that I was such a cliche. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the problems with being a sex worker is that, um, first of all, it attracts people with pretty strong egos, like big egos. Sometimes um, I, I would say there's a narcissistic element to doing sex work. And if you fail at sex work, it's probably because you're not narcissistic enough. Um, it's also, it's part of what gets you through it. It's, it helps you to succeed at it and also to survive difficult things. So, so you know, you, you think of yourself as kind of special. At the same time, you do have to be realistic and you do know that you're not the only one because you're part of this army of sex workers. However, when I saw all the different voices, I agree with what my colleague is saying here. Yeah, the, the range is... Which it's really wonderful, but at the same time, I, I realized, wow, just how, when something's universal, which there is something universal about sex work, right? And as, as we become more vocal about it, you know, it's coming out of the closet. We said, we started this movement so that we wouldn't have to be in the closet, but as people come out of the closet and it becomes more, I, I suspect that it's also becoming a more popular occupational choice because of that. Yeah, you begin to realize that you are part of this, well, it's kind of a mass of humanity, you know? But I'm also really tickled by just how many people in different corners of the poetry world have been involved with sex work. So I wanted to read a, a short paragraph from the, the foreword from Mercedes Ng that talks about just the, the gamut that's in the anthology and is in the industry in general. My experience was that was of the survival sex trade, but sex work exists on a spectrum as modalities of sex work are many and mutable, as are we sex workers. 
This is why hustling verse is so important. Gathered here are multiple narratives of our lived experiences and the context that gave rise to our experiences. We're not abject victims without agency, even though sex workers are often victims of violence. Justin Ducharme and Akira the Hustler's poems show that we are effective laborers providing tenderness, healers giving medicine. Naomi Sayer's poem eliminates how the remote locations where some indigenous sex workers live makes getting to and from work dangerous and the public would be wrong, wrongly viewing her father as a human trafficker because he drives her to the strip club where she chooses to work, though he does so to ensure her safe, she arrives safely. Sex workers are protectors of ourselves and our friends and our chosen and blood fams protect us. We're astute analysts of language, media, legislation, labor, beauty standards, homophobia, transphobia, colonization, and racism, and we are poets. About this intersection between poetry and sex work, both of them feel like they're curious forms of expression and performance to me. Does, do you think that that's part of why there's so much intersection? Or do you think that there's other reasons why there's so much intersection between them? Well, I think, I mean, it's, I mean, at least in my from my gaze, what I've what I've seen is, and I think this kind of goes back to when I, when I toured with Sex Workers Art Show and started working with the Desiree Alliance uh, concurrently. I think that what 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 I saw anyway, and in, in, in like working in a performance show like that had been around for a few years by the time I began participating in it. And then with the people who I, I, I met, like with at a, a sex worker conference and then later helping to put together that conference. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's an unusual intersection and in just that people are complicated and people do a bunch of different you know, things. And if not being related to his career tracks as such, people have lots of different things that they, they like to do. And I think that poetry and when, when anthologies have been cre uh, created or readings of like if you talk about readings that are geared towards sex workers in different like places, it's, it's been about the opportunity to not just to speak and speak to power about the experiences like the experiences that are de detailed in Hustling Verse, but about having them documented too as well, I think is what that is. It's like if that's in a chat book, if that's online, if that's in a published, uh, formally published uh, anthology. I think that there's a lot of, uh, understandably, a lot of uh, impetus to tell these stories, for people to tell their, their stories, to talk about their experiences, and to talk about their experiences uh, on their own terms, and also in through when they have, in the best case scenarios, have opportunities to tell those stories uh, through conduits that are respectful, that are, and not just respect sex workers as writers, and sex workers and storytellers, but respect the audience who they're gonna be presenting these, these narratives to. So I think that you could, I mean, as chock full as hustling verses, I mean, I think that you could have multiple hustling verses very easily, you know, given that, I mean, if you talk about what my experience of community and just given the inclination of people to write and to tell these, uh, and to tell these stories. I think the shape of it gets, I don't know if that's a word, curiouser and curiouser as, the, the, the forms and the throughways that we're able to use to tell these stories shift and change and expand. It's like it was like there was a different way that like even just around like advocacy in relationship to that, there was a way that that was done or that you or that you had to do that before there was an internet as such. And the internet has been a great thing. And, and as we know, it can be a not so great thing at the same time, but it just kind of 
it's there and we use it, you know, for, for, for what we can use it for, like we use all the other forms that we, that, that we are able to express through. I mean, I think that people who go in and out of the industry or who just do it for a short time, there's something that we do um, in sex work that is, it's, it's like it's, there's a search for authenticity. And sometimes when sex workers get together, I've noticed that people um, who have like two or three gigs, like one of them is sex work and the other two, maybe someone's a teacher or a writer. They're sometimes really defensive and almost afraid to call themselves sex workers because there's a fear that you'll be considered inauthentic. And it's like a, it's like, it's a reversal of what happens in straight mainstream society or what used to happen because actually our society is really going through a major change around this now, right? But it used to be that, well, my God, you'd want people to think that, well, no, I don't really do this. <laughs> I just did it twice because, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, and you'd want straight people to think that you didn't really do it. You were just trying it out, blah, blah, blah. But you, but, you know, when you're with sex workers, it's the other way around. And the more gritty and illegal and problematic your experience was, the more authentic it is. And so there's a lot of of discomfort around that, I think. And yeah, I've heard people like expressing real insecurity about like, well, I, I guess I can't really say that I'm a dancer, even though this person dances, right? But it, because she has this other job and everybody will kind of reassure her, no, no, it's really okay, honey. You can call yourself a dancer. <laughs> Yeah. And this yeah. this all this is like this is the thing. This is like the central neurosis of our community. And in a way, I guess it's kind of funny, you know, it's it's kind of touching. And I think that some of the poems in Hustling Verse speak to that. And but you know, it, it's one of those things. It's the comic and the tragic, right? Um, so one of the things that we talked about um, in the book club was uh, the notion of poetry as a um, inherently subversive art form, like that you you can be you can express yourself in poetry differently than you can in other types of fiction or in other types of of art. Um, and I don't know if either of you can speak to that of why poetry specifically, not just why art and why creative expression, but why is there something? What is it about? poetry specifically? Mm. Hmm. Well, for, I can say that like, what I think that that happens a lot of times with, 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 with poetry, I mean, I think that there is a way that the relationship that poetry has to language, just in terms, or just not even just language, or just even like actually individual words, I think in a way that like, there's a way that I mean, of course, like, I mean, you can write a novel that's a formal, you know, that's written in a, in a formal way, or you could write a magically real, you know, novel and play with language. You could play with a language, you know, like a, a, a novel that's a long form poem. But I think that the immediacy, the space in which people have to, uh, to stretch and the immediacy uh, of poetry in terms of, of concretizing ideas in the short, in the relative short form, I would say, is uh, I think is a good, uh, and, so, and a lot of times a lot safer entryway for people into, uh, into writing. I think that it's, I think that the, that the possibility for, and the encouragement uh, in the best case scenario to revise, uh, to go back to, to, to re revise, to shorten, to lengthen, to go back and, and revisit writing or revisit ideas 
without the particulars of the pressure of like, if you are writing a, a 400 page novel, I'm not saying it's easier because I've written tons of shit poems and I don't pretend that that's something that, that has not, that has not happened. Um, and that what that it wasn't something I have to work at and that people have to work at it to be, to be good at it or to have some facility um, with it. But I think that that was, that was certainly the way that I related to it because my first entry into writing poems was as an MC and as a songwriter. So I dealt with that was just sort of a lateral uh, shift uh, for me. That was, and that was really actually ultimately, and, and interestingly enough, because I got to the Bay Area in 99 and the slam scene was just in full swing, that that was not something that really, I know people, who, I know I have colleagues and people who do great work within that context, but it wasn't something that appealed to me because I was more interested in exploring what I was doing on a page as opposed to the, uh, something that was really ingrained in the, in the performative. And so it was a practice for, for my pen game, so to speak, or for my writing in a particular kind of way that I had that, that also that I had time uh, to do in this other kind of way, because uh, I think that's been the appeal of it as, as well because of working and working. And I could sit, I, I could sit on my lunch break um, if I was working somewhere where I had a lunch break and like literally jot something on the back of a, a, a sandwich wrapper, like sometimes. Um, like that and stick it in my pocket and come back to it um, later. So I think that that's a, 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 if it's just, if it's just drafting, redrafting, exercising, or just writing something like a couple of lines or something and, and leaving it there um, and letting it be what it is. I think that's been, that's the appeal of it is that the, the relative, the, the access and having conversations around access has been something that's important um, to me. And that's what I like about uh, poetry. And that's not to say that people don't have cultural and social relationships that make them feel like poetry or poetics is some kind of rarefied space that they cannot enter. I'm not saying that those dynamics around race, around gender, around class, all that stuff doesn't exist at the same time. I'm just saying that like those, there was stuff around those, those, of some of those spaces that were in play for me, but that was still just the easiest way for me to not just to to get my ideas down, but to validate myself as a writer, because I just did not have any, I didn't have a notion of myself as ever becoming a novelist, but I grew up in the black arts movement in the seventies as a little kid. And I knew tons of people with poetry. So I was like, I can do that, you know? And I was already rapping already. So that was, that was the way that that went for me. And I think that's the way it goes for a lot of other people from wherever they're coming from. Uh, you know, so I reached my public first uh, through my novels, writing, I, I would call it, it's commercial fiction. It's it's kind of streetwise chiclet. And uh, Juba mentioned a 400-page novel. I personally don't want to write a novel that is more than 276 pages or so. Like I think 300 is the limit for me. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. some people can churn out very long novels, but I'm one of these people who tries to go very short. And so that's how I first, you know, reached an audience that was like a big audience and you know and then I moved into more journalism stuff like that I think what I like about the poetry form is it's a way for me to be a newbie again it's it's a way to be very inexperienced and afraid and you know deeply insecure and terrified of rejection and because I was um, I'm not saying that every book proposal that I've put out there has been accepted. That 
you know, I have dealt with rejection in book publishing, but with poetry, it really is a, a new game. And I would sometimes tell people who ask me about the writing business, if you love the idea of being, you know, rejected by some bigwig <laughs> in your field, <laughs> then you have found your craft. Like, I'll never forget the day I was told, Michael, just this piece just doesn't work for Michael. And it was Michael Kinsley, who's like a big, important editor at Slate and all this. And I was just thrilled. I mean, my piece had been trashed by Michael Kinsley and I took it somewhere else and I did manage to publish it. But I just felt so important because this big wig had rejected my piece. And, you know, and I'm, I feel some of those things. And that was the beginning of my um my writing career. And I feel some of those things as a poet, you know, if I get the chance to show something to a highly respected editor, I don't necessarily, I don't expect them to publish my stuff necessarily because I'm really new at this. But that's when I began to realize, okay, maybe I really am a poet or should be a poet because that kind of thing turns me on, you know? So, and, uh, a lot that really is the testing ground. If if you can't be thrilled by that aspect of whatever it is that you do, whether it's music or painting or writing, then then I think you're probably in the wrong business because of course you have to deal with that so often. Yes, as a poet who has tried to get things published in journals and everything, uh, absolutely get comfortable with rejection. Um, I have a couple of friends who do a challenge throughout the year to see who can get the most rejections mm -hmm. um right <laughs> uh, it's like a race I mean, to 100 yeah yeah isn't it great when it takes them two years to reject your piece because then you know that they really spent you think or you hope that they really spent hope, some time yeah. considering it <laughs> so uh, and you know seriously it gives you a certain humility and sometimes you need to go back to you know you need to experience that and if you're having success in one area of your craft, perhaps it takes you away from that, you know? Princess had told you before we went live that, you know, a lot of this started really as a, a podcast exploring what we'll call traditional erotica and sexier romance, you know, just the genres that people read to get off basically. And we've opened it up to things like this that are explore sex and eroticism and desire in other ways, other than just quote unquote, guilty pleasure reads. Um, uh -huh. So I'm curious, Tracy in particular about like your novels as, as chiclets are, are more pleasure reads and these poems are, are not like do you think about your audience as you're reading these and do you think about what you want how do you think about your audience as you're as you're writing your novels and what part of your own experiences goes into them um and how different is it to to write these poems which are they more just for you or are you still thinking about your audience so Okay, in the novels, uh, there's just 
there's there is some kind of an erotic element to the novels, but they're not really written as I wouldn't call them porn or even soft porn. Um, they're more from the point of view of like what's going on in the mind of somebody who's producing the erotic experience. But I've I shied away from a certain kind of, you know, debunking. You know, I, I you know, there's a tendency sometimes to people want to debunk the erotic experience that the sex worker is producing. And I feel that it's a little more pastel, a little more nuanced than that. And so sometimes, for example, the character, the characters in my fiction, uh, the working girls, the sex workers, sometimes they are experiencing a kind of pleasure, but it's a, it's a very subdued pleasure because at the same time, they're pretending to feel another pleasure. So it's like, there are all these different layers. Um, and I think it's really dangerous to write something that is only for yourself. I, I think that's not a great idea. I mean, you can do that and, you know, yes, I've been known to do that, but I, I don't really want to publish things that are, that are that nakedly self-serving. I, I do always think about the reader. Maybe, maybe there are people who can succeed in engaging a reader by ignoring the reader, but I don't feel that this would be me. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. Yeah, know that, that makes sense. And um, Juba, I had a question for you. I, it's a comment and a question. I feel like I, um, I so appreciated um, the way that you speak to your children in your piece. And I feel like it's something that we don't see, you know, black fatherhood in general, we can go like a million miles down the road of like, how we don't see that enough, right? So I wanna say thank you for that. And hey, you're welcome. <laughs> right, like, oh. <laughs> you know, sometimes you read something you're like, I didn't even know I needed that, but I did. So, and I don't know if you can also speak to like, why was it important to, to include that? And why was it important to talk about shame and taking that shame away by talking about it? Like, I don't know if you can and speak to that a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think what was what was, what was important for me to talk about that is because because the poem because three different three that particular poem starts in a context of shame like every like everything that was in that poem was like was true like happened like all of that happened like were conversations that I had with my parents and conversations that the, like the, the, the pleasure chest party that I'm describing like I, all of that happened so it was like and so it was like what I wanted to talk about was, what that looked like for me, like, and with the end point of like, I'm in Oakland in a car with my son talking about like, your dad's a porn actor, coming from a space of like growing up in Afrocentricity and post Panther kind of black national, you know, black nationalism that for better or for worse, like I grew up in an experience of a tremendous amount of respectability politicking, uh, if you will. And they're being, having an intellectual understanding of the overcultural forces that sort of in, engendered that, but at the same time being really, I think being being really frustrated as a kid because, you know, the whole the rhetoric of like we're free and self-determined and blah 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 blah, was really smacking up against this like these are the things that we don't talk these are the things that we don't talk about these are the things that 
then and and not even just that these are things that we don't talk about, but specifically we that we don't talk about with regard to to sex and sexuality. And for me specifically, things that, that it was clear to me that women in particular were not supposed to talk about and how that conversation and how though the, the shape of those and watching like the whole point of putting in a pleasure chest party was the space of like the, the importance of having this experience of watching a bunch of women push back uh, against and particularly my mom uh, push back against those against those I uh, those ideas. So. I think that, and I, I think a lot of it too is, is has to do with my class experience in the sense, like I grew up in the hood, but I grew up really kind of escape working class, you know, with a dad who was a teacher and a mom who uh, mostly self-taught, but owned a series of, you know, a series of successful businesses. So they were, you know, they were sort of pillars of community, council of elders, blah, 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 and that kind of, you know, way in Afrocentrist nationalist community. And so... I think that there was these these ways that 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 I constantly uh, struggled with and want to reflect on. And if we're talking again about writing for the audience, there's a way that like I'm writing about my experience, but writing for an audience and saying that like, hey, here's a here's a space where I, you know, that I struggled to come through, but was able to come through. Uh, not just, not just, I won't just say whole, and not saying that you don't come through with your scrapes or, or whatever that is, but still with the inclination to be uh, honest um, and as honest as possible. And then we have a conversation about age appropriateness and so on and so far like, like that. But the idea of, there's a space of, around that that I have for my, uh, myself as a writer and as a person and that I was able to work and push and find. But a lot of what I wanted to, particularly for my children, is to not to have as hard a time around that as as I did in the sense that like I don't want you to be have to be I, that's, we don't have to pretend like we agree about everything but I don't want you to be afraid to talk to me about what you're thinking about what, the way you're navigating this about what your 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 angles are you know around this and that uh hopefully and and hopefully that's that's been my my biggest hope that my biggest tool is being able to be like let let me create a space where we can be be straight up as 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 possible you know about that, and that's about whatever the form it ends up being that you're that it ends up being that you're expressed. And I appreciate you saying that because, I and when you say that around the idea of like writing for the audience, that wasn't in my idea that like you know I'm the black father, you know. But that's an that's like I'm I'm here going wild. Like I'm I'm very pleased that that spoke to you. You know that 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 way that like I'm just sitting in the in you know in what was the black I called the black man car that I had at the time talking to my son about that and that he you know and that he received that in the way that he he received that in the way that he did and that he understood that the way that he did so it was also about writing that piece was that like i i felt for once that i got something right for a moment too about that it occurred to me throughout the discussion of this uh that juba um your work with deep dick deep dick collective um i've I was like, why do I know that? Why do I know that? Where is it? Because I'm friends with Tim M. West and we've uh -huh, done yeah. some shows way back when. But, um, you know, that experience, uh, that Black male experience and being able to, uh, you know, as a bisexual man, creating the work and sharing the story of your piece has the cultural markers in it. It, it has the realness of the conversations and the experiences um, that you share in it. And there's also the, 
the lyricalness in the writing and the work that shows the background that you have as a, a lyricist and a poet. Um, and as I was skimming um, through the book, I would say I haven't actually uh, read it uh, full cover to cover, but uh, your placement, the, the placement of your work in the book really feels like um, almost an anchor, if not like a reset um, of everything inside of it, because I think a lot of the work, and we talked about it in the book club, a lot of the work is coming from this perspective of the writer uh, addressing clients, whereas your work is addressing kind of community um, and the community you know that surrounds you as you experience these things and and you know being open about it and being straight up about it uh, you know as the conversations that you're having with your son and then the experiences that you're having in like the party and things like that. Yeah, I think that part of the reason that I chose to, to, to speak to do it that way, I think goes back to some of what Tracy was saying about how it was my running into people who like, I mean, it was particularly with, with just talking about my experience as and how I entered sex work at really as a hobby was actually through Deep Dick Collective. Like someone saw a performance at the Good Vibrations from from Good Vibrations saw a performance at their 25th anniversary party and they were looking for uh, men of color to be in this production. That was how I ended up in the first production that I was in. But having a conversation about that where in that way about authenticity because my entry into sex work was really casual and hobby and with, and came with a lot of relative privilege and, and a lot of, and, and in general, and I think a lot of relative privilege into uh, to the people who are all like in the, an, the anthology um, that started as a hobby, but then became something that actually became not a lucrative, but, but, a, but a significant part of my uh, uh, income as, I, as, as time went on. And I think that, uh, uh, yes, uh, I would say a big part of that if we're about ad addressing community, but and also addressing, particularly about addressing the, the working class community that I came, came from, that this is a part of an, an intersectional conversation that we can have about race, about work, about, uh, about ability, uh, about, about gender, about a bunch of different things. At the, we can have a little bit of these pieces of these conversations at the same time as what I was trying to, trying to do as a way of like sort of laying out a road of like, okay, how do we want to explode this? How do I want to explode this later in later work in my life? And like, what are the questions that hopefully I can, you know, help come up or help answer, help people get to their own answers for about their own specific experiences that are kind of, that, that are not exactly the same as mine, but kind of similar to mine. So it was important for me, to, I think that it was important for me to talk about that in a, in a, in a ground, as, a ground, as grounded a fashion as possible, given that the, the experience of direct, of direct service with clients has been just a kind of here and there thing for me. It wasn't a front, a front line of, of work for me. Um, one last question. So um, we're trying to remember to end all of our interviews this way where, who else should we talk to? Who else should we be reading? What other things should we be exploring? So if you had to recommend a couple of folks to us and to our audience, who would that be? There's a book I, I read last year. I don't know if this fits your, you know, your typical theme. It might be of interest to you. It's actually a YA book. So it was written for teenagers, but I found it quite interesting. It's called Like a Love Story. 
I can't remember. I, I don't have the author's name in front of me. Um, I can pull it up for you. And it was published in 2019. And what, what's kind of fun about it, it's a, it's a book for teenagers. It's YA fiction. And it takes place in the late 1980s during the kind of heyday of ACT UP when the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power was being formed. And so it's about, it's kind of historical fiction, right? It's about teenagers who join ACT UP and get involved with, um, you know, with the AIDS community. Um, and it's also before there are really helpful treatments. So a lot of people are dying of AIDS. It's, it's quite an interesting look at that scene and at gay life during that period. And there is a kind of love story running through the, the book, through the novel, um, between two high school boys and um, a girl who's part of their kind of emotional triangle. So that just sort of came to mind when you were saying feminist erotica. It's not straight erotica, but it definitely there is I mean, it is a book about sexuality. It is a book about sexual issues. A couple of things off the top of my head, it's like you asking about feminist erotica, like Hannah Blank's work comes up. I can't remember the name of the anthology that I read that, that, that she did, but if you Google her, like a bunch of her stuff uh, comes up and I really like the texture, uh, the, the texture uh, of her writing. And, and uh, the way that just stuff around ability, sizeism, race, all kinds of like that's of stuff comes in and congeals, queerness all like kind of congeals um, in her work. And, and at the moment, I can't remember the name, there's a novel and I can't remember if it's actually a YA novel, but Aya De Leon wrote this novel. And it's like, if, if I just had to describe it, it's like, it's like, Zane crossed with Cardi B crossed with Wu-Tang Clan with these sex workers who are are right like doing like like doing robberies to raise money to 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 build some kind of community org or or or, or something like that but it's like I, I remember when she told me about it and I was like I have to get that book and I just fell down on getting books uh, period. But both of those two like pop up in my mind um, immediately uh, as, as, as people to read and like, like who write about, who do, who do sexy writing that's, that's super, 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 super feminist. And it's hot. I have to tell you really quickly. Um, I could, I'd like to mention another book that might interest you. It's called When Brooklyn Was Queer. It's by Hugh Ryan, R-Y-A-N. Um, it's social history. It also came out last year. It's really an interesting book. It starts by talking about Walt Whitman, um, gets into the architectural, the relationship between Brooklyn architecture and sex work. Um, it, it's wow. really, I know, I mean, that's, I mean, that's not the whole book, but there's a moment where that's clearly what's being talked about. And yeah, it's, it's, it starts in the 1850s and brings us, you know, into the 20th century. Really a, a good read. And I learned a lot from it. I love how diverse this is. This is great. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Thank you once again for joining us and um, for being a part of the anthology. And uh, this was a great conversation. Any last thoughts? Just thank you. Thank you a zillion uh, times. People like ask me, like, like ask me sometimes now. I turned 50 this summer. Um, and it's been 21 years I've been in the, in the Bay Area. People are like asking me, like ask me like, well, how do you feel about what you're doing and about working stuff? And I said, I did something right. I think people still call me and ask me to, to talk about stuff. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm I, I feel lucky to be that people have to want to hear what I, you know, want to say. So I appreciate that. And thank you. And thank you for doing, uh, doing this podcast. And thank you for your work and your art. <laughs> Well, thank you. Yeah. And, and thank you for, I, I finally had a chance to meet Juba who, you know, I've been reading about, um, same. <laughs> in fact, the same yeah, well. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I was first invited to be part of this, I, I looked at some of the other people and I saw Juba and I was really intrigued. So I finally got a chance to meet him. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank this you. Been incredible. Thank you. It's been a, a really awesome. beautiful conversation. Feminist Erotica is a podcast from Rebellious Magazine for Women, hosted by Jara Brown, Princess McDowell, and Karen Hawkins. If you have an idea for a future episode or want to share your thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at feministerotica at rebelliousmagazine.com. Follow us on Instagram at Feminist Erotica Podcast, on Facebook at Feminist Erotica, and on Twitter at Feminist Erotic. And make sure you subscribe to us wherever you devour podcasts.